0: Or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. I want to say a warm welcome on this very cold and odd cold day here in Pretoria. It is a joy to be able to come with you now and study God's Word again. But before we do, again we just want to recognize that how kind is god yesterday there was a son that came into the world if you saw on the whatsapp group blake and claire scheiderman welcomed the little baby boy leo into the world and so we rejoice with god for a safe delivery of this little one uh, who is now part of our church family so we praise god for that yes I want to thank Akani for opening up God's Word to us last Sunday as we looked at the book of Jonah and that amazing encouragement we have to think about God's mercy and how God's mercy helps us to move toward others. How God's compassion causes us to reflect on what Jesus has done for us and so we move towards others in the same way with that good news. Today, we get back to our study of the book of Galatians the book of Galatians, you'll remember that last year we took so much time to walk through the book of Galatians verse by verse. And it's been a rich time for us because then over December we paused and we, we went through the Ten Commandments to understand the, the relationship between the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the law. Now a few nights ago, around 3am in the morning, my son came into my room, wanting to see where I was because he woke up early and thought to himself, why has my dad not come down to wake me up? He was convinced that it must be time to get up and that we most likely going to be late for school because we have a bit of routine in our home. When my wife and I, we wake up first and then we get ready for the day and then eventually we go down and we get to go jump on our kids and we hug them and we kiss them to wake them up. This is honestly one of the most favorite things I can do as a dad. And I love it. But the hugs and kisses were not coming. So my son decided he's going to come up to my room and come jump on me. Which usually I don't mind. But it's 3 a.m. in the morning. It's a little bit too early for me, you know, and I think I handled it pretty well. Just allowing him to sneak into our bed with us instead of getting annoyed with him or angry that why did he wake me up at 3 a.m. I really wanted him to sleep well and be fresh for that day at school. But of course, you know what happens. I could not fall back to sleep. It's 3 a.m. There's like 120 minutes of golden sleep still on offer before I have to get up. But it was game over for me. I was awake and I couldn't fall asleep again. But naturally this guy, he's able to go back to sleep within seconds, snoring away in my bed. But now imagine what it would be like, let's say, for my kids to wake up every morning wondering where dad was. Is he going to come to my room? Is he going to be nice to me or not? Wondering whether I would be loving on them, or rather treat them as someone that annoys me. Imagine what it would be like if they woke up wondering, does he even want to be my dad? Which would be kind of weird, right? To know one day that they are my beloved son and daughter, but the next day they doubt that. That would be very strange and very sad, right? But as strange and as sad as that might sound, I wonder how many people who say they are Christians wake up every day and at some level struggle with this very question of who am I in relation to God the Father and what does He think of me? What do you think right now that God thinks about you? Because we know that sin makes life so confusing. Sin causes our relationship with God to get kind of weird. And maybe you look at your circumstances and you might wonder about things like, where is God? Does He love me? You see, it's when we get confused about the truth of the gospel that sin causes people to doubt whether they are really worthy of His love. And it can even get to a point where sin or or suffering causes people to doubt where they are truly a child of God. And what does it result in? Well, it can result in a few things. One thing it can do, it produces legalism again. Where people look at their own performance and efforts to determine whether they are in a right standing with God as their father. Where they try to keep the law like the Ten Commandments as a way to feel as if all is right with him and okay with him again. But they end up tired, frustrated, confused and doubting what God thinks of them. Because the more they try to keep the law in their own strength, the more they feel as if they're failing. As if they have to give their lives back to God again and again, rededicating their lives and their commitment to Him over and over again. Because there's this confusion between what we do and what Jesus has already done. Where people affirm they are justified by grace, but they think that growing in holiness comes by keeping the law. And if that's true, then perhaps you fall into this kind of relationship dynamic with God where you feel as if you have to prove yourself to Him all of the time. And show Him how serious you are about Him. Which honestly makes the relationship weird. But then you can also find people who affirm that they are justified by faith in Jesus, but they live as if Jesus and what He did for them doesn't really change anything about their relationship with God. They affirm, God is my Father, but they simply think He promises to take away their sins. So basically, the responsibility is on Him to keep forgiving them for their daily sins. So instead of legalism and all the rule-keeping and, and your own strength, people look at the gospel of grace and they think they have this license to just keep on living for themselves. Because ultimately, God is going to forgive them, right? having this obscured and distorted view of his grace and his love and essentially what's happening is that people get the gospel wrong and so what we've been doing since last year is that we have been walking our way through the book of galatians because the book of galatians helps us to get the gospel right it helps us understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. The book of Galatians is helping us zoom in on the very issue of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can see clearly the emphasis is on alone. No additions to the gospel. No Jesus plus anything else. Because the book of Galatians makes it very clear that no amount of good works no matter how good they are, can make us right before God. And so the beautiful truths of this letter helps us evaluate what we ultimately find our security in. What we ultimately find our security in. Where does your confidence lie in your relationship with God? Is it in the way I love my neighbor this week? And the amount of times I went to church this last month. And maybe how well I memorized the Bible. Or is it what Jesus did for me from start to finish and how that truth transforms the way I love God, my neighbor, and practical ways I want to live for His glory. Because Galatians helps us to see that Christ has set us free from the power of of sin, Because grace not only paid for sin, it disables the power of sin. Grace not only paid for sin, it disables the power of sin. And if you get that truth wrong, it messes with how you relate to God as your Father. It changes the way you think of the law and it impacts the way you seek to grow in holiness. And so Paul is passionately defending the truth of the gospel and its implications on the Christian life. Today we're going to take a quick overview again of the first three chapters of the book of Galatians to get us back on track with Paul's overall argument. Because at the end of chapter 3 where we ended things off before we started our our series on the Ten Commandments last year, Paul's argument has been building up to this massive moment for us to understand how we are no longer under the Mosaic Law, but rather we are in Christ by faith, and how that impacts our relationship with God as our Father. In other words, What God has done for you through Jesus shows you that God has always been interested in being your father. He's always been interested in being your father in an intimate and personal way. So I want us to read from Galatians 3, 23 to verse 29 just to get our minds going again. And then we'll take a step back and look at the big picture of the first three chapters. And then we'll focus on one verse for today. Galatians 3.26. And we're going to do that in order to understand who we are in Christ and how God relates to us because of Christ. Who we are in Christ and how God relates to us because of Christ so let's read this together from Galatians 3, from verse 23. The word should be up on the screen. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of us, you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. And when you begin to le- read the Paul's letter to the Galatians, the Galatian Christians in chapter 1, you immediately get the sense that something is very, very wrong in the church. Instead of giving this nice introduction about how he loves them and how he's thankful for them, and like he does in most of his other letters, Paul immediately voices how disturbed and concerned he is about what is going on in these very churches. He planted himself on his second missionary journey through southern Galatia. And as we have said before, Galatians is a hot letter. It's a hot letter. And part of what that means is that Paul is very, very passionate. Because there was no time to waste. Paul is about to engage in this epic battle to defend the truth of the gospel. And there's this great urgency in how he writes. Because you remember that there were these highly influential false teachers known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers who were confusing the Galatian Christians and causing them to turn away from grace. Turning away from what Jesus has done to give them real freedom in their relationship with God. And turn to a life of so-called faith in Jesus, yes, plus adding to it the law. And the requirements for for like circumcision and keeping all the Jewish calendar and events and festivals and all that religious stuff. You had to do all these things to really be a child of God. Which is the exact opposite of freedom. And suppose like in Galatians one nine: If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed which of course is another way of saying if anyone messes with the truth of the gospel, let him be damned to hell. Anathema. And so we can learn from Paul how to defend the truth of the gospel from the book of Galatians. One of the first things Paul does in preparation for this battle is that he establishes his authority as an apostle of Jesus. Because if people didn't trust the messenger, then no wonder they were open to another message. Which means Paul had to defend himself against all these different accusations that he is a man pleaser. That he's changing the gospel. Because his false teachers were saying that he had one message for the Gentiles and a different message for the Jews. That basically he must have made up his own version because if you look at his ministry, Paul's pretty much a one-man show. Someone who is the self-appointed apostle, not really working with the other apostles. So bottom line, this guy Paul, he can't be trusted. But Paul says he can and must be trusted. Why? Not because he thinks he's so important and decided he wants to do ministry on his own. Rather, he's like, look at the evidence, people. Look at the evidence, Galatians. Look at what the real gospel message did to my own life. Galatians one twenty three. Let me show you the power and authority of God's Word in transforming someone's life. I mean, as the former poster boy for, for Judaism and what it means to be religious and serious about the law, Paul is this dramatic example of what real saving faith does. How the real message of faith alone in Christ alone changes someone's life completely. Which meant that the message he was proclaiming was the true gospel message. Because he didn't receive that message just from any man, did he? He got it directly from God. There was no broken telephone that could alter the message in any way. There was this direct line from God to Paul which proved that God had set him apart for this very mission and this very moment to establish the authority of his word. In other words, if you don't trust Paul, you basically don't trust Jesus. That's pretty much what's going on in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, Paul is actually in contact with the other apostles. After this long period of doing ministry on his own, He went to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. And during this big meeting, they were in in agreement that Paul has got a right. He is proclaiming the right message of freedom in Christ. They are on the same page regarding the message of true salvation. But you know, Paul, he was not so much looking for their approval as much as he was looking for their partnership. And because of being so certain and confident about the truth of the gospel, given the way he received it from God directly, he finds himself explaining a situation where he had to even oppose the Apostle Peter to his face. You remember how in Galatians 2, the Apostle Peter was getting the gospel wrong. He was not living out the truth he himself proclaimed to others. He wasn't sticking to his gospel convictions. He was fearing these influential people and the cultural (laughs) pressures more than fearing God. What the culture said and did went so deep for Peter. And sadly, that changed the way he related with his new gentle brothers and sisters in Christ. And if Paul was willing to stand up for the truth against Peter, publicly rebuking him for this gospel defective behavior, then he was definitely going to stand up for the truth against anyone else. Because understanding the real truth of the gospel produces a new kind of boldness in you. If you really understand the gospel, you will be bold for the gospel. But if someone like the Apostle Peter can get confused about how to live out the truth of the gospel, then we've got to be honest with ourselves Then that's very possible for us as well, is it not? And so to bring clarity to this awkward situation with Peter, Paul launches into the very core doctrinal truth of what it means to be justified by faith versus being justified by the law. And so at the end of chapter 2, he repeats himself by essentially saying the same thing, but in different ways, which is clarifying that we are saved and declared righteous only by faith in Christ and not by any works of the law. And then to prove that, he appealed to the Galatians' own personal experience. So he moves from establishing his own authority to which is establishing God's Word as the final authority, and then his own experience in the Gospel to their experience with the truth of the Gospel, calling on them to remember when they first heard the message of Christ alone and how that changed their lives. And so he wants them to remember the way you got saved is also the way you live after you are saved, which is how? which is by faith in what Christ has done. Second half of Galatians 2.20. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then he goes to the Old Testament. He wants to strengthen his argument by diving into the Old Testament. By using God's word in the Old Testament to prove his point. Because the Judaizers would think, hey, we're the experts when it comes to the Old Testament. And the wonderful truth we saw from the Old Testament is that when it comes to justification by faith, Paul showed us that the same way Abraham was saved before the arrival of Jesus which is by faith in the promises of God, is the same way people are saved after the arrival of Jesus. Trusting in the promise of complete forgiveness because of what someone else has done, even when you failed for that millionth time. Galatians 3.6 This amazing promise of Genesis 12 and 15 shows us that God has always had the plan to have people who were not Jews, who were not Israel, to experience His blessing and be part of His family. And so Paul is like, listen Galatians, if you have faith like Abraham did, then God says, Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That is who you are by faith in the promise of God. By taking God at His word. But if you go back and rely on the works of the law and your own efforts to be right with God, to be part of that blessing, then Paul says you are in fact cursed. Galatians 3.10 Because if you're going to keep the law to be right with God, you better keep all of it. Every single one of them. And church, is there anyone on this planet, apart from Jesus Christ, who can do that? No way. And so what's the solution? The solution then is, for the cursed self-righteous slave to his own efforts, is that Jesus became the curse for us. Galatians 3.13 And so what Paul is doing in Galatians 3 then is, that he's giving the historical argument. The historical argument he's showing how God's plan has been unfolding from the start and so what we see in Galatians is that Paul defends the gospel by establishing his own authority by showing the authority of God's Word he shows how his life was changed by that word how he was willing to stand up for that word and then he appealed to the Galatians own experience of the truth and then he dives into the Old Testament To prove that God has always had faith and trust in Him and His promises as the only way of salvation and sanctification. And so he makes the historical argument and he points back to the promise God made to Abraham. The promise that includes blessing to Gentiles like you and me. And then he explains how the law then which only came four hundred and thirty years later Galatians 3 17 fits together with the promise and this bigger plan of God's salvation And so to help us even more to understand salvation by faith and nothing else Paul explains how the law actually works and what was the purpose for the law because remember this is the issue of Galatians the false teachers are saying Go back to the law to really be a child of God. Maybe your instincts today might be the same when it feels as if your relationship with God is not where it should be. Going back to doing the law. You must do more and more to get God to be on your side again. And the Judaizers were even saying, unless you do these works of the law, you cannot be a son of Abraham. Because the thing is, you need to be a son of Abraham to experience the promised blessing of Abraham. But then the question is, if God's law can't save you, Paul, and if it can't make you a son of God or son of Abraham, then why did God give the law in the first place? If the law can't save you and it has no saving value like the promise does, and if trying to keep all the rules on your own strength doesn't result in blessing, but a curse, then why would God even give the law to Israel? Perhaps you remember what Paul was saying in Galatians 3.19 and following. Because that's where we left things at the end of last year. Answering the question, why the law? Why the law? Because what he says would have been shocking to any first century Jew and perhaps even shocking to you. Because first he said the law was added because of transgression. Galatians 3.19 In other words, the law was given to show God's people what sin really is. One purpose of the law was to reveal to Israel and us today how we have crossed the line and have broken God's law and His standard of holiness. Which then, if understood correctly, should create this wonderful, beautiful on-ramp to the gospel, right? To see your absolute need for Jesus. But then Paul also says the law was also temporary. It was temporary. It had a temporary function in the bigger scheme of things because it was going to serve a specific purpose until Jesus would come. Second half of verse 19. And the law was limited. It had only prepared you for Jesus. It couldn't save you like Jesus saves you. Because when the true Son of God came, the work of the law was finished. But it was also limited in that it was given through a mediator. You see, where the law needed a middleman in Moses because of man's sinfulness, where there's this distance between God and His people, the promise came to us directly. It came straight from God to Abraham. No middleman. What Paul's trying to show through all that is that the promise is in fact superior to the law. The promise is superior to the law. And he goes on to explain that the law and the promise, they don't stand against each other. They don't contradict each other. They actually work together because salvation has always been by faith. There's always only been one way to be justified and find true life in Christ. But then Paul explains in verse 21 that the law, it cannot give you the life you want. Galatians 3, 21. That is why we went through the series of the Ten Commandments. Because the law is supposed to show us that we can't do it. Only Jesus can. We fall short every single day. In fact, our final message, after the final message of the Ten Commandments, someone wrote me from the church and said, Pastor, I thought I was going to get five out of ten. But I got zero out of ten. And I replied, well, guess what? You're not alone. I got zero out of ten as well. Because the law was never meant to give you life. Yes, it guides us. It gives us wisdom. It reveals to us more about who God is. But it cannot give you eternal life. And so if you're responding to our series of the Ten Commandments by saying, I just need to do more of these. I just need to keep more of these commandments and realize you won't find life in them. You will only find disappointment because the law is going to put you in prison. Galatians 3.22 The law is going to put you in prison. Because we're all sinners who can't open the prison door ourselves. We need someone else to do that for us. And so instead of the law being a way to find life, it puts you behind bars. The law doesn't give you the freedom you want in your relationship with God. Rather, you feel trapped in the misery of your own efforts. But then Paul gives another picture, if you remember, of the law. The law being like a guardian or disciplinarian. That's the word Paul uses here in verse twenty four that of a guardian. The better picture is that of a of a babysitter. Think of a babysitter. The Greek word describes that it was like a slave in those days that was appointed to be like a babysitter to the kids. And if the kids got out of line, then this babysitter would discipline you to get back in line. This disciplinarian did not try to teach the kids how to be better so they they could be pleasing to the father. Their job was to punish the child if they failed to do what they had to do. And so what Paul is saying is that the law told God's people what to do and then punished them for failing to do it. But then we come to Galatians 3.25. And then there's this dramatic shift in time. There's this huge change in salvation history. Because Paul says, but, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian there is this dramatic change in how god's people relate to the law now that jesus has arrived because the law helps us to call sin a sin and then god sends his son to be the savior for that sin john stott he summarizes this so well so i'm going to read it to us he says Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need for the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and for life. Not until the law has driven ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus? Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. And so here at the end of chapter 3, Paul is coming to this grand conclusion of the historical ar- argument. The conclusion between the relationship of the law and the gospel. And the emphasis shifts dramatically from the law, the law, the law, to Christ. Christ. Look at how many times Paul talks about Jesus in these next few verses. I'm going to read it for us. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ Then your Abram's offspring heirs according to the promise. So here's the thing. You must know who you are and what God thinks of you if you're going to understand the truth of the gospel and if you're going to live out the truth of the gospel every single day. If you want to avoid going back to your own efforts to feel accepted by God or come to a place where you are just continually living like you always did, thinking that God will just forgive you anyway, then you must embrace the amazing glorious truth from Galatians 3.26. The amazing open door of freedom, knowing who you are by faith. Because Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith. I want us to slow down and think about how the gospel changes our status before God. And our relationship with God. Because if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you know who you are. Because you know to whom you belong. You see, where verses 23 to 25 explain where people were under the law, Verse 26 explains what we are now. And what is our status before God according to this verse? If you're a true believer in Jesus, God sees you as what? He sees you as His own child. He sees you as His own son. And this is huge. We need to see the gravity and the the fullness of the gospel in this verse. Because what does the Bible describe us? Before we had a relationship with Jesus. Ephesians 2.3 And we were by nature children of wrath. John 8.44 explains who was your dad. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And so think of the implications of this. Paul is saying if you understand and believe all of what I've been saying about faith, and how you have turned from a life of works and you've turned to Jesus and faith, you get a status and relational update, which is the most important update you will ever need. You go from being a child of the devil to being a justified, righteous, beloved son of the mighty God of this universe. And so think of the original context again. Israel would have thought of themselves as the only sons of God, right? I mean, this is even what they were told to tell Pharaoh back in Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. I mean, there's also times where God lamented over Israel like a father laments over his son, Hosea One. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This actually is one of those verses that connects to Jesus, but honestly, that's a whole message for another day. The point is that the Jews thought they had this exclusive status before God. But now Paul goes and he says that the same status as being a son of God belongs to who? You are all sons of God. That word all changes everything, doesn't it? Paul is reminding the Galatians of what happened to them in terms of how God sees them and relates to them when they trusted in Jesus Christ and not in the works of the law. They are in fact now children of God. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but do you notice that instead of saying that the gentiles were also sons of abraham because remember you had to be Paul's arguing you have to be a son of abraham to receive the promised blessing paul gives him that even a higher status he says you are a son of abraham yeah that's true because now you're a son of god and the only way that you can be a child of god is how For in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you must be united to Jesus. This is what Paul has been saying all along, that you need to be in the Son to become a son. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, there's a difference between God being the creator of all people. And the judge of all people. But only the intimate father of those who are united to his divine son, Jesus. In other words, when you become a child of God, you have access to the father in ways that unbelievers don't. Because having God as your father brings you into this unique, intimate relationship with him where you don't have to wonder, is he going to be there? When you wake up in the morning. Is He going to be there in the middle of that trial? You don't have to wonder, does He he love you? You don't have to wonder, is He going to care for you? Especially in times where, where you're so overwhelmed with your sin that you can't imagine that He's going to be pleased with you. If you truly understand that you permanently belong to Him, that you are His child, then you embrace and marvel at the words of 1 John 3, 1, which says, See! What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. In other words, church, it's only once you understand how truly wicked and sinful you really are, the kind of understanding that comes through the law of God, that you can start to embrace the fact that God wants to be your Father and accept you into His family, not because of who you are, Or what you've done, but only because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus, the divine Son of God, came to this world, lived and died to make you a Son of God. But is that how you think of your relationship with God? Are you confident that you are indeed His Son or daughter? Because the only way to gain the status before God is to be in Christ, which comes through faith in Christ. Paul's argument has been clear throughout the whole letter. You can only get the blessing by faith. Justification is by faith, Galatians 2.16. Union with Christ is by faith, Galatians 2.20. The blessing of Abraham comes by faith, Galatians 3.9. The promise of the Holy Spirit is received by by faith galatians 3:14 everything god gives us must be received by faith and not by anything you have done and becoming part of his family is exactly the same you must believe there's no way you can impress him enough that he will take you into his family Rather, what we see here is that Paul is starting to to use adoption language here. God must be the one that chooses you and adopts you into his family. And he's going to talk about this more in in chapter 4, and I'm excited for us to get there. But for now, we need to appreciate the, the wonderful truth that God looks at us as one of his own. Because we have been so fundamentally united to Jesus. He relates to us as a perfect, loving Father. And if the the God of this universe is our Father, then surely He will care for us. Surely He will provide for us. Surely He will care for us with exactly what we need. In fact... Our Father in Heaven loves us so much that He refuses to let us go our own way. So what does He do? Well, we sometimes experience His loving discipline, right? In order that we can let go of the world and let go of our own efforts and turn to His Fatherly instruction. The author of Hebrews says it well, Hebrews twelve seven, where God says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God loves you as his own and he will do whatever it takes to to help you mature in your faith. So instead of having this, this guardian, this babysitter that stands over you and over your shoulder and corrects you all the time, you have the loving discipline of your heavenly father who knows exactly what you need. So that you can see how much you really need Him. And how much you actually have of Him in Jesus Christ. Because knowing that God is my Father changes the way we think about living this life. Surely it changes the way we think about living this life. So I want to close by just mentioning a few ways that is true. Firstly, Think of God the Father's patience and love. Think of His patience and love. You might feel as if you have sinned too much for God to continue to be patient with you, but recognize that as His child, His patience with you never runs out. His love towards you never runs out. Psalm 103.17 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. And so if that's true, then instead of feeling distant from Him, we can always go to Him, right? Because secondly, because if God is my Father, I can always go to Him confidently. Which means you have this, He's undivided attention at any moment of any day. And no matter how badly you have messed up again, God wants you to come to Him. The Father wants you to come to the, to the throne of grace confidently, repentantly because of your union with Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thirdly, because God is my Father, I do not have to earn His love. I don't have to earn His love. I can live each day knowing that I have His approval because of how I am united to Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you because you were so lovable. He loved you while you were still a sinner and He will keep on loving you as a sinner. But instead of being oblivious to Him, you now live in the confidence that you have His approval in Jesus Christ all the time. Which means, as a child of God, you want to love Him by obeying His commandments. As a child of God, you want to stop bearing false witness against other people. As a child of God, you want to stop lusting after other people. And so again, the law guides us, but it doesn't save us. Knowing and remembering that God is our Father helps us to get the gospel right. I'm so excited to keep on studying the book of Galatians with you, to keep looking at the gospel for everyday living and to see what it means to be adopted by God. To see how the Spirit of God brings the relationship with God to to life in practical ways. And to see how together we can help each other, not rely on our own works, but on the finished work of Jesus. We're studying the book of Galatians because we have to get the gospel right. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we can call you Father. We look at the cross and we see Jesus Christ dying in our place. And we see this is a dramatic moment in salvation history. Where you take those who are under the law and you set them free to live as your own children. To know that I am a son of God. That I have a father who loves me unconditionally. I have a father that cares for me every moment of every day. I have a father that knows what's best for me every moment of every day. And so, Father, we don't want to look at the law as a means to make us right with you. We look at Jesus and we praise you for Jesus. And then we look at the law and we say the law guides us. It helps us see who you are. It helps us see your holiness and it helps us see our sinfulness. And so, Father, we think of of your grace as as these train tracks, Lord, these train tracks and justification and sanctification, the trains running on these train tracks, fueled by grace. And your law are these signs that help us to stay on the right path. And all of that happens, Lord, by understanding who we are in Christ by faith. Father, help us to leave here today with confidence, knowing that I am a child of God. We pray this in Jesus' name.